Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, the annoying voice of podcasting, and you're listening to the non-annoying Three Guys in a Flick. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. He doesn't have a name, so death can't find him. He doesn't have a home or people to care for. He's not afraid of anything, men least of all. He's as fast and strong like the big wind. He can hear a hundred miles and see a hundred miles underwater. He can hide in the shadow of the noon sun. He can be right behind you and you won't even know it till you're dead. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Waterworld. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from somewhere in the middle of the fucking ocean, my name is Don, and to my right we have our comic book guy, John. How the hell did we get here? I don't know. Last I checked, we were in the middle of the fucking desert. We keep, yeah, you're you're no longer in charge of travel plans there, bud. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. I'm feeling erpy. Wait a minute. I feel like we've done that before. Moral of the story is we can't take this guy on a boat. Tonight, we are talking about Waterworld. Waterworld comes to us from one of our fans and, coincidentally, my cousin, Beaver, uh, who was recently in a car accident but is mending just fine. So I thought, you know what? We're going to pull out his request, which is Waterworld, so he can listen to us, heal, and have a great day. So this one's for you, bud. Released on July 28th, 1995, Waterworld was directed by... Kevin Reynolds, written by Peter Rader and David Towie. And it stars Kevin Costner, Dennis Hopper, Janine Triplehorn, Tina Margarino, Michael Jeter, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? (laughs) This movie goes down in history as one of the most expensive movies ever made at the time. Cost $175 million. And worldwide, it brought in $264 million, with only $88 million of that from the United States. Notoriously reviewed as one of the biggest flops in history. Even though it did ultimately gross enough money to make a profit. I think the profit ended up, after years and years and years, I think it, I think it wound up making like $8 million. It was the uh, VHS, I think, and DVD sales. Yeah. That- yeah. Recouped all that money. Yeah. You made mention that at the time, this was the most expensive movie to be made. What beat it? Two years later, James Cameron took a little trip down to the Titanic. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This movie, for me, I'm going to say is kind of like a guilty pleasure. There is so much wrong with this movie that at some point I just had to stop and go, all right, it's a popcorn movie. Let's just have some fun. This comes right after Wyatt Earp, which didn't do all that well. The Bodyguard, JFK, Robin Hood, Dances with Wolves. This is Costner in his prime. You Mm -hmm. know, Costner was a heavy hitter in Hollywood in 95. That's for fucking sure. And I have to say, I'm a fan of Costner's. 
uh, always have been, always will be. I think I'm one of the few people that actually really enjoyed that three-hour-long epic Wyatt Earp. Well, also, I mean, let's just address the elephant in the room. What is another one of your favorite movies out there? Jaws. Well, besides that, happens to be Waterworld in the Desert. Jurassic Park? I believe it would be Mad Max. Uh, well, more specifically, sir. Beyond Thunderdome. More specifically, sir, it would be the Road Warrior. And yeah. really, Waterworld is Road Warrior, almost as you've put it, I think, at one point, shot for shot in the water. Uh, beat for beat. Um, beat but for beat. yes, it is definitely the Road Warrior on water. And in fact, that's how it was pitched. Mm-hmm. You know, The writer actually said that uh, the Road Warrior was a massive inspiration for this movie. Yeah, it's, it's glaring you in the face. Do so. you know what movie he went on to write after this that also was, in, I guess, was inspired by Mad Max and Waterworld? I know he had just done The Fugitive, um, but after that, no, I don't know. What was it? Riddick. Oh, yes. Yeah, he did do the Riddick series. And if you think about it, you take kind of how Mariner was in this movie and maybe, you know, Mad Max... Uh, you can kind of see a lot of those elements in the character of Riddick by, with Vin Diesel. Do you have a favorite Kevin Costner movie? Uh, Professor, I knew you had that in the barrel. And, God, there's so many that come to mind. Uh, Bull Durham has to be up there, absolutely. I know that the fan favorite is Field of Dreams, but I don't consider that. It's probably in my top five, maybe. Uh, but to answer your question, Professor, I think right off the right off the cuff, I think I have to say it's uh, Bull Durham. I think I, I think that's mine off the cuff too. A uh, close second is Open Range. Oh, with Robert Duvall. Mm-hmm. Oh, great flick. And that was kind of his comeback, right? And then he turns around and he's Superman's dad in The Man of Steel. Fucking he, awesome. He does this movie called Draft Day, which I absolutely fucking loved. And if uh, you like football, you should watch it. It's a great flick. And then you know. Hidden Figures, he was great in Hidden Figures, right? And now he's doing the Yellowstone thing. So again, I'm a big fan of Costner, but number one professor, Bull Durham for me. Me too. What about you, John? Do you have a favorite Kevin Costner, or do you like Kevin Costner at all? Does it have to be a Kevin Costner led vehicle? I'm just asking. Do you have? Let's start with. Do you like Kevin Costner? Uh, He's okay. I'm not a huge Kevin Costner fan. Uh, Obviously, people go to dances with wolves a lot. I thought, you know, that was a good movie. You didn't even bring up Bodyguard. I know. You don't like that one? Have you seen it? Yeah, it's a great movie. Okay, bud. <laughs> Actually, no. I feel the dreams would be my pick if I was going to pick a Kevin Costner. You know, that movie where they play throw. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is like the fourth time that Kevin Reynolds, the director, and Kevin Costner teamed up. The first one was a a low-budget movie called Fandango, and then they did... uh, Robin Hood. Robin Hood, and uh, Reynolds was a assistant director on Dances with Wolves. Mm -hmm. So that's how, you know. But their relationship was strained, Mm -hmm. uh, and it all came down to creative differences. And so because of this troubled production kevin reynolds left this movie before it was over like he did with robin hood too so uh john i think you said it earlier when describing kevin costner what did reynolds say uh he said that kevin costner is best when he directs and acts in his own movies 
Why? Because he gets to work with his favorite actor and director. That's exactly right. So it might be kind of good to be Kevin Costner. I, I did read that it was 15 years before those two worked again. Yeah, 2012, together. I think they did a show on Netflix or something like that. Um, but yeah. Interestingly enough, Kevin Reynolds wrote Red Dawn. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. What do you think of the pacing of this film? Oh, do we want to jump into that right now? This movie was probably 20 minutes too long uh, outside of the 45 minutes that was cut. Originally, Kevin Reynolds wanted it to be a three-hour film. And because Wyatt Earp had done so poorly, the executives and Costner were like, no, we, we can't, do another, can't do another epic like that. Did you hear there was a fan-released version uh, they put together clips. I guess they got together all the deleted clips, put it all together to create the Ulysses cut. And it, I guess it did so well. It was so popular. The distributor actually approved it and as well put it on to, I guess, some copies of the Blu-rays. Uh, it came out with in 2019 on the Blu, uh, Blu-ray 4-disc edition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess I would be kind of interested to see it. However, it's going to explain things that I already had assumptions about that I didn't need told to me in order for the story to progress. For me, from start to finish, Waterworld makes sense. Well, I watched some of the deleted scenes as well as some of, you know, what how the story would have gone. And I know that the opening would have been different. There would have been much more explanation. Uh, actually very similar because we just watched Mad Max. Or, I mean, we just watched Road Warrior again recently. It's very similar to the opening of Road Warrior with more explanation of how we got to this point of you know the flooded earth and why people don't remember dry land, um, why they think it's always been flooded. It talks more about the religion that these people follow. Uh, it goes on, the story goes on and has more of a mystery behind the tattoo and more buildup for the tattoo. And in the end, it has, a I think, personally a better explanation of why kevin costner's character does not want to stay on dry land why he ends up leaving besides just the fact of he doesn't feel comfortable yeah none of that moves the story along you know and that and that's ultimately probably why it was cut uh what do we need to know we need to know that the world is flooded and we are now post-apocalyptic mad max on water so i'd like to talk a little bit about james newton howard he is responsible for the musical score for Waterworld, and I really appreciated his music that he gave us in several instances throughout the uh, the movie. I, I think that he does a really nice job of uh, giving us sort of that uh, rustic, uh, frontier, uh, primitive music. And I, I was really impressed by uh, his uh, his different moods that he gave us throughout the movie. Turns out this guy, he's been a composer. He's done uh, over 175 different uh, pieces. And he he's known around Hollywood as a guy that can just crank out in an emergency at the last second a, a musical score for you. And he has done some big names. Like he did the Batman Begins, Dark Knight. He did uh, Hunger Games. He was also responsible for... Uh, your Wyatt Earp, and he's had a bunch of different musical scores. Uh, he did the uh, sound. Uh, he did the the score for uh, the Willow TV series, the one that's out now. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, 
anyway, I just I just thought that uh, he was a really uh, strong pull for the movie. Interestingly enough, he was married to Rosanna Arquette for a year. <laughs> One year. I, you know, I feel so much uh, smarter knowing that now. So thank you, Professor. You bet. Uh, and it's funny that you say that he's the guy they go to in a pinch because he wasn't the original guy to do the score. He came in with not that much time before it was released. And he, what he put together, I thought fit just fine. And you can tell a James Newton Howard score. You know, he, he has a style, and, and I dig him as a composer, absolutely. It's interesting that you bring up that he was brought in later. Do you know who else was brought in as a writer? Joss Wheaton. Josh Wheaton was flown in to, I guess, fix some things. And uh, he described it as seven weeks of hell, and none of his lines were ever used. Mm-hmm. So, What did you think of the casting of this movie? Uh, the casting was fine. I mean, outside of Costner, I like Janine Triplehorn. I thought she did a good job. Uh, Tina Majorino, I thought, did a really good job. A lot of times, kids in 90s movies annoy me, Edward Furlong. But uh, I thought she did a good job. Everyone else was kind of bit players outside of Dennis Hopper. The gang, the elders, the scavengers they meet in the on the ocean, they were all kind of those guys from those 90s movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for what it is, I thought it worked just fine. What do you think of Dennis Hopper as the bad guy? Oh, Dennis Hopper is a great bad guy in anything he does. He's always a good bad guy. Yeah. Do, do you hear who turned down the role? Uh, who? Gene Hackman. Samuel Jackson. And Gene Hackman. And Gene Hackman. Can you uh, imagine? I think it would have been a very different movie with Samuel Jackson as the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been. Uh, for Janine Triplehorn, did you hear that uh, when she did her nude scene or wherever they dropped the clothes, that wasn't her? Yeah. It was a, a body double. Yeah, and I guess the story behind that was she wanted to pick the body double who would represent her in the movie, and so she wanted to make sure that I guess they had a nice rear end, so they had to bring a bunch of women into her uh, trailer and just basically have them disrobe and show their butts to her, and she said it was the oddest thing she's ever done in a filming career. Yeah, well, being that it's 2023 and what I really want to say, I can't say, I will just go ahead and say, wow, that's really interesting, comic book guy. Thanks, buddy. And Professor Smart, he says nothing. (laughs) So for this week's trivia questions, Waterworld related, Let's see which one of you knows the movie better. All right. Fire away there, tough guy. Okay. First question. If all the ice at either pole melted or even both poles at the same time, would it be enough to cover the entire planet? No. No. And it still wasn't because we saw that in Waterworld. But let's say even Mount Everest, you know, it doesn't cover all Mount Everest. Would it be enough to get all the way around the world? Would it cause the kind of destruction that's described in this movie? No. No. The answer is no, which is because contrary to popular belief, there isn't enough ice at either pole to cover the earth if they all melted. Not even considering that overwhelmingly the majority of ice in the Atlantic, or excuse me, in the Arctic is floating. So it's already displacing that water volume. So really it wouldn't make much of a difference. It wouldn't, Whoa, 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 okay, stop right. Let let me stop you right there. Are you trying to tell me that this movie isn't accurate? Scientifically accurate? No, it is not scientifically accurate. Now, 
If you go to the extended versions or the comic book versions, they reveal that it's more moon related. And that's what caused all of the flooding. And it's because of the tides and everything that came up. So that's how they explain away this uh, scientific you know, fallacy. Well, whatever. They can try and retcon whatever they want. It's still fucking bullshit. Okay. Here's the next question for you. Question two. What are the two plants that Mariner takes with him? Takes with him? or Well, one of them he has in the beginning of the movie. One he gets later on in the movie. Well, the, the, it's a lime tree, and then the other is a tomato plant. He is correct. Was it a lime or a lemon? I think it's a lime because they're green when okay. he's eating them. Okay. Yeah. So you're just going to agree with him. Because it's fucking right. Do you want me to try and say, okay, ask me again. I should give you guys buzzers, and whoever gets it first gets the point. So point to Professor. Who is Helen named after? And this one's a tough one because you oh, have seen the extended cut. No, she's named after, uh, is it the Odyssey? No. Yeah, Helen it's of the, Troy. Yeah, Helen of Troy. That is correct. And you got it first. I'll give it to you, Don. When Mariner takes Helen on the deep dive, what city do they visit? Good old Denver, Colorado. That is correct. In one scene, Enola draws some animals. What animals does she draw? Uh, it's a horse. Well, yeah, I mean, it could be misconstrued as a horse, or you could even say it kind of looks llama? like a donkey or a llama or maybe even a liger because she goes on and she draws that like 10 years later. Right, right. Good point. She draws the horses that we see at the end of the movie. Okay. From her memories. So that goes to Professor. What does Enola give Mariner at the end of the movie? A Music kiss. box. I'll give that as a tie. What did you say? A kiss. Oh, you said a kiss. Okay, it was the music box. Well, she does kiss him, too. That's the very last thing that she does before she runs away. It, do you give a kiss? I'm, 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 I'm promoting the professor's answer. I think that's great. Mainly because it's a big fuck you to your trivia. Well, for that, the professor gets the win this week. So it's all tied up. I think you got it last week. Professor got it this week. All right. I fucking love it. And you know what the winner gets, professor? A big old fucking that- high five. I was hoping for a kiss. Oh, okay. That could be that could be arranged too. It you're, could be given. You're you're yes, absolutely. Consensually. Consensually, by the way. Okay. In the year twenty five hundred, as a result of the sea levels rising over twenty four thousand nine hundred feet, every continent on Earth is now underwater. The remains of human civilization live on rugged, floating communities known as atolls, having long forgotten about living on land. It is believed that the mythological dry land exists somewhere in the endless ocean. The mariner, a lone drifter, arrives at an atoll on his trimaran to trade dirt, a rare commodity, for other supplies. When the atoll's residents see the mariner is a mutant with gills and webbed feet, they decide to recycle him by drowning him in a pit of organic sludge. So this movie opens with the Universal logo... We get an animatic of the of Earth spinning and all of the dry land just sinks or gets covered, I guess, if you will. And, you know, for the longest time, I could have swore that it was James Earl Jones that opened this movie with the narration, but it wasn't. And I'm watching it last night going, who the fuck is this guy? He's some voiceover movie guy. I know, and he's giving us the lowdown of what's going on. You know, it opens up like that one movie that we, uh, I saw that one time. Road Warrior? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we get to meet Kevin pissing into a cup, 
and drinking his own urine, recycling it, and, mm-hmm. uh, drinking it. What did you guys think of this opening of us getting to know the Mariner? I mean, I would have liked an extended version, another like five minutes of explanation of what happened to the planet. Why? <laughs> no, you're right. It wasn't needed. Right. Right. All you need to know is that the world is now underwater. That's all you need to know. I did think it was interesting kind of giving us this opening of, you know, he's jumping in the water, going for a deep dive, and in the meantime, someone's stealing his limes, and we get that whole interaction of introduction quickly to the smokers, as well as, you know, what his what uh, the Mariner's boat can do. Oh, the trimaran. Let's talk about this for a second. Uh, when I saw this for the first time, and I, I am not ashamed to admit that I saw this in the theater, um... I fucking love that boat. Super interesting. And it was put together very, very cleverly. Yeah. And it and it's functional. You know, the the one thing you can say about Waterworld, if anything, is this is probably the last movie of its kind. Uh big budget, big effects driven film that's all practical, right? Very little use of CG in this uh movie. And unfortunately, when you see the cg you can tell it's cg CG. right yeah but as far as the stunts and the practical sets and i mean all of that shit's built you know uh hollywood does not make movies like this anymore did you hear the story behind the boat behind the trimaran which story is that the one that i was thinking of was that kevin costner wanted you know a little bit of method acting wanted to look at home on this boat so i think for seven weeks while they were filming in hawaii before they even started filming he took that out every day and spend all of his time on the boat to get that home feeling like he lived in it. Yeah, they had uh, a racing boat maker make two of those boats, and one for the long shots, and then one for the up-close shots, kind of like what they did with the Orca. Um, but each boat was like a million dollars. So, Super interesting to watch the intricacies and the inner workings of the boat. Really, really uh Effective use of the camera work there, having us being all, being all over the boat to watch those different mechanisms uh, actually functioning. Yeah, and thank you for bringing up camera shots because that leads us to the director of photography. Do you know who the director of photography of this film was? I don't remember who the cinematographer was. I, I read his name and I did not look into him. The director of photography, Dean Sumler, was the same director of photography that... Uh, Kevin Costner used for Dances with Wolves. Oh, I think I knew that. And if you wondered why it had so much of a Road Warrior feel, not only was it based on the Road Warrior, but it was shot by the same guy too. So same cinematographer as the Road Warrior and Waterworld. So after the Mariner's fruit gets stolen. uh, How does he not see that boat when he first comes up? You know, I don't know. I, I thought for sure that he is savvy enough to... To be um, always on alert that he would have spotted this other vessel right next to his. And and here's another thing about the water. I, you probably couldn't ever use the element of surprise. Right? Because you have a clear horizon yeah. in every direction you look. Yeah. You know what I mean? So how did they know? Th- how did they not hear the smokers are right there too? I got the impression, and maybe this is early on for a foreshadowing of later on, that he gets stupid when he goes in the water. Because there's two times he goes in the water, comes up, and he's basically taken by surprise. 
So I don't know what it is about him, but yeah, he just doesn't function well when he comes out of the water. Yeah, it's it's plot convenience of what is what it is. Yeah, you know. So well, the lime thief he certainly got his comeuppance stealing the limes, and then to have his mask slashed. Yep. Yeah. He is fucked. But he also tells the mariner that there's a settlement eight miles to the east, mm-hmm. um, which is the atoll, and so that's where our hero, or loner. Our anti-hero, how about that, uh, set sail for. Isn't that where he tells him that there's a bunch of gas at this refinery that's... That's exactly what happens. Absolutely. And so he comes to the community. I'm not going to say atoll anymore. Fuck that shit. Uh, he comes to the community and uh, he comes in for trade. First, they don't want to let him in until they see his, what, big jar of dirt or something? Yeah. I mean, he has what's the equivalent to gasoline. Uh, dirt. You know, because that means that there's dry land and, and on this community, you, they have trees and and uh, or like roots and yeah. stuff that are trying to grow. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a high price commodity and they see that he has it. So he comes in. The enforcer tells him he only has two hours, says he only needs one. And at this time, uh, we've met the Mariner and I got to say, Kevin, Mr. Costner. Why do you try to do accents that don't stick? All right. He did the same thing in fucking Robin Hood. And then I don't know what the fuck he was speaking in this, but he didn't sound right. Well, when it, he was, was it just me? When he was speaking another language, he was speaking uh, Hindu. And then whatever accent or whatever he was trying to do, like I was saying before, it almost sounded like he was coming across like a four-year-old, like in his speech patterns. I thought it sounded very immature. Yeah, it just sounded weird to me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and what made me think of that is when he tells them, I'll only need one hour for the mm-hmm. train. And so he goes to, I guess, what would be considered the store. And he sees, well, no, he goes, trades in his dirt and gets all the chips. So right. now he's got a bucket full of chips. They give him an offer and he says he wants twice that. Right. And they're, they're like, okay. I mean, because it's real dirt. And I like the guy who eats it. He's like, this is real dirt. And so he goes, and he goes to the bar, and... No, he, he goes to the store. Well, oh, it's a store slash bar. Yeah, because he orders water. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so he goes in, and he gets his tomato plant. And we meet Helen, and then also briefly, we meet Enola. And then we also get introduced to one of the smokers. Nord. Uh, what's his name? Well, he's a spy at this point. Right. Nord. Still makes him a smoker. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, he tries to make friends with the Mariner. Well, before that, he's talking to some guy about Enola's tattoo. Right. So we're setting up the audience that this kid is special for whatever reason. Well, this is how either Deacon sent him in as a spy or he found out the information and took it back to the Deacon. Right. Because there had been rumblings that there's a child with a tattoo that leads to dry land. And so uh, the Mariner gets all of his shit. Well, he pretty much buys out the store. Right. Shelves included. Yep, because, you know, he's got to get all that shit. And he goes back to his boat, and the elders... They they bring a girl, and they want this girl to go with him. Right. Well, I thought... I didn't know if... Did they want him to go with him, or did they bring up the fact of there's already been too much inbreeding going on in that area, and they wanted his seed in the daughter to avoid some inbreeding issues. And yeah, they didn't want the girl to go with him. No, they just wanted him to go with the girl. Right. Cause I think they even say you can stay as long as you want or until the deed is done. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And he was like, no, I'm good. Thanks. 
and then they're all suspicious, who would turn down a young girl? And so he gets arrested. And they, and, and they, they spot his gills. And this is kind of where it went south for me. I didn't like the gill bit. Uh, I didn't like that they made him a fucking mutant or a fish. It totally takes away from the Mad Max vibe. And so, you know, it, it drops a little bit. It comes to be very convenient later on, but I don't know. I, I just wasn't a huge fan of the gills. Did you guys like the gills? It worked for me. Yeah. For me, it made him, it made the whole idea of land a lot more unnecessary because he could just live in the water. Why does he even have to come to the surface? Right. And so they, you know, being human beings, I guess, they fear what they don't know and they lock him up. What do you think of their sludge? Um, I wasn't, I was confused by it. Me too. I mean. Why did they have that? Yeah. You have fire. I was guessing that that's how they grow their trees and everything else is nutrient uh, rich sludge. And so they let decompose our bodies decompose in that sludge to give nutrients. Uh, maybe. Well, they did refer to it as recycling. That's what they're going to do. They were going to recycle him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, the atoll is attacked by the smokers, a gang of pirates seeking a girl named Anola. According to their leader, the deacon, she has a map to dry land tattooed on her back. Enola's guardian, Helen, attempts to escape with her on a gas balloon dirigible created by inventor Gregor. But the balloon is released early. Helen quickly frees the mariner, insisting he takes both of them with him. The three escape to the open sea aboard the trimaran, pursued by the smokers. Helen's escape results in damage to the mariner's boat, and he angrily refuses to take her to dry land but then cuts her hair and Enola's as punishment, but decides to take them anyway. During their quest to find Dryland, many other events happen to them, such as a drifter approaching them and being killed by the Mariner after a trade, coming across a trap set by the smokers, finding a large mutated shark, and discovering Enola's drawings of various Dryland objects that the Mariner recognizes from a National Geographic magazine. So, naturally... Um, they're getting ready to recycle the Mariner. And at the same time, uh, all the smokers come up. And again, I don't, I don't know how you get surprised because you can a, see it, them coming. Yeah, it's a flat horizon. There's not much you can do. But anyway, um, like that one movie we were talking about, you have the bad guys coming up to the gates and, uh, Dennis Hopper says something like, uh, what does he say? Bring me the door or, Something like, go get them, you know, and then all hell breaks loose. What do you guys think of this whole bit with the attack on the Atoll? Have you been to Universal Studios? Yes. And have you seen the Waterworld attraction? Yes. I think that wasn't that pretty much this whole scene is what they redo at the water, uh, the Waterworld attraction? Yeah. So, felt like I'd seen it many times. Hmm. I, re- I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was fun watching the uh, the jet skis do their, their jumps over the top. Uh, I dug the airplane uh, assault as well, and it was amusing listening to uh, Deacon uh, as he does his little small talking about, you know, how things are going. Yeah, I, and I agree. I think that they found some really clever ways to invade. Uh, I like how the jet skis dip and go under it and then come up top, you know, the the water skiers mm-hmm. being brought in. And then at the same time, uh, Gregor, uh, we're told... Uh, 
can read the map or is friends with Helen and Enola and is on their side, whatnot. And he accidentally trips the hot air balloon, if you will. Activates it. Yeah. And so uh, he gets the gyrocopter into the air. I- I'm sorry. I mean, he gets the hot air balloon in the air, uh, but he's got to leave. And Helen and Enola. They're stuck and they couldn't get up to him. Right. And so uh, Helen sees the Mariner. And the Mariner's cage gets dumped into the sludge and we're running at a time. And uh, she goes, she knows, or she at least has a feeling that if anyone can get them out, it's him. Right. And so she goes down there and she makes a deal with them. If I release you, you're taking us with you. And he's just like, sure. <laughs> I did appreciate that, you know, a lot of these movies, our hero is so overpowered that he would have gotten himself. He was would have been already out of the cage or he he would have died without her help. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah. I do appreciate that they gave him that vulnerability. Yeah. He didn't have super strength along with everything else. Yeah. And well, and we're, we're coming up momentarily to one of the biggest problems I have. Um, but she lets him out and she her and Enola have to go get the door. You know what I mean? And so the Mariner has to go get his boat, but it's on the other side of the lagoon or whatever, and he jumps in. And I swear I thought I was watching a dolphin. And then when he swims up and he jumps out of the water, I literally said to the screen, what the fuck was that? But it was cool. Yes, it was fucking cool. (laughs) I got to say that half of the previews that you think of in remembering this movie happened during this sequence. Oh, yeah. This is yeah. this is a 13 minute action sequence and it is jam packed with lots of adventure and swashbuckling good-naturedness if you will. Yeah. And and he excels at uh, uh showboating in this style. Yeah. A couple questions I had. One, uh how come no one's targeting his boat? How come, you know, all that's going on? And two, yeah, I only had the one question. How come they don't go after his fucking boat? Man, I don't know. He just kind of glides right out of there until he gets stuck on the door, which I thought was funny. And then the whole Errol Flynn thing where he grabs a line and shoots up the fucking mast. Another great shot. Yeah, all of that. And all of that is practical. Mm -hmm. And Costner did a lot of his own stunts. Yeah, that's one of the things they were really afraid of, that he did most of of his stunts. And so um, they managed to escape, but... At the same time, uh, as the deacon and the smokers are laying waste to this uh, community and this fortress. um, He didn't have permission to leave early. And so uh, the Mariner's trying to take off. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, now what are you going to do, right? You're on the fucking water. It's not like, what are you going to do? But what I thought was clever was what they did do is he takes the harpoon and he... uh, The gunboat. Yeah, he harpoons the gunboat. And I like the bit because the gunner it has ear earplugs in, uh, goggles, and there's so much soot and debris and gunpowder that he can't see that he's just shooting. And as it turns, I like uh, Dennis Hopper's kind of reaction. You know, why is that gunship turning and still firing? And so he takes off, and it allows the Mariner, Enola, and Helen Who to escape. That? Is that Stephen? Yeah. <laughs> it was something like that, and he's using like a proper name for him. Yeah, yeah. Did you notice anything familiar about Mariner's harpoon gun? Uh, it's the same harpoon gun from Joss. Yeah, it's the same one that Quint uses. Yeah. 
Uh, did you know that Kevin Reynolds called Steven Spielberg and said, uh, can you give me any advice on shooting on the water? And, and what Spiel- was his advice? And Spielberg said, yeah, don't fucking do it. So now it's the three of them on the boat, and we're getting to learn how the Mariner is getting along with them. And one of the first conversations that they have is the Mariner is like, uh, we're going to throw the kid over over the side. It's just better to get it over over with now. Right. And Alan's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then I like the Mariner says what I was thinking. Well, fuck, if I was smart, I'd get rid of both of you. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you had to choose between which one to throw over the side, you know, I'm always... You know, advocating throwing kids overboard, you know, you know me from what my comments a few weeks ago. But uh, if you had to choose between the child and the adult, which one should go overboard? And I originally thought it should be the adult because she would eat more, she would drink more, uh, and uh, a child's easier to deal with. But you, Don, I think brought up a good point of adults more practical and adults more useful. Well, if it were me, I would have thrown them both over. Yeah, because I'm all about me. So, Ken, you got an opinion on that? No, he would have let them both stay, and they all would have been dead within weeks because they ran out of food. Yeah. <laughs> um, we also have Deacon finding out about Helen and Enola, and so now we have Deacon laser focused on where's the girl. We also learned that he lost his eye. And was that from the gunner shooting? Did he shoot out his eye? No. Yeah. Because he has both eyes. Yeah. Explosion. Okay. He has both eyes before we, Mm -hmm. before that happens. Correct. And then, so, um, time progresses. The Mariner allows them to stay. And, uh, Enola finds some crayons and he starts marking up, uh, the Mariner's boat. And I got to say, Kevin Costner is really good at playing a dick because the Mariner for the first half of this movie, is kind of a fucking dick. Well, this is where I kind of, you know, it adds on to my impression of he's very immature. He's an immature character, probably because he's had no schooling. He's also been on the water so long. That he doesn't interact with people very much because the comment he makes to, to Enola is don't touch my stuff. Yeah, well, a very the very juvenile kind of comment. I suppose. Although you probably say that to your kid all the fucking time. Don't touch my shit. Well, if you're used to living being completely alone and not having to share any of your stuff with anybody, and then the moment somebody comes on board, they start going through your stuff. I can understand how you might be a little upset about that. Yeah, and realistically speaking, if we're sitting in a post-apocalyptic world. I'm pretty sure all manners are fucking thrown out the window. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because he's rough. He's rough with all of them. You know, he he pushes Helen down numerous times and he uh, pushes the kid down a lot. I would like to bring up during this time that we have Deacon's world shown to us. And we get to see who Deacon is with all of his people and how he goes to his office, if you will, in the company car and you got the Peter Gunn theme playing. That was hilarious watching him go through the crowds and they, and they had that, the, uh, the, the, the cattle, the cattle, uh, uh, pr- pusher, you know, oh, like, what they, they call the cow catcher. The, yes. Yes. On the front. Yep. Yep. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, yeah, totally. Who takes a fuck? I mean, it makes sense because those tankers are pretty big, right? <laughs> so why would you want to walk everywhere? But no, they have a car inside the tanker. We also have, during this time, 
we show that time is passing on board uh, the Mariner's boat. And eventually he gets so frustrated with Enola asking all of his little questions and he just flings her overboard. And he does it so effortlessly. It's so funny. Like he didn't even think about it. He just tosses her. Right. And, but it turns out she can't swim. You know, and then I'm thinking to myself, who in the fucking, who in water world doesn't know how to swim? Well, my thought is, she says he can't, you know, she can't swim, she can't swim. I don't think he cared to the point, because didn't he throw her the board to kill her anyway? Like, he wasn't planning on going back and getting her. Well, he might have. I think he was just throwing her over so she'd stop talking, because yeah. they just have a conversation before he does it. Why do you talk so much? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, Helen uh, dives in after her, and then I like his reaction afterwards, because you're right, he's kind of debating do i go get her do i not go get her so he kicks the gear whatever and he swings the boat around and picks him up after they get out of the water a plane flies overhead and finds them and so now they are found by the smokers right it was a smoker plane did you see who was flying that plane that was jack black yeah well i guess one of his earliest roles yeah yeah i didn't recognize him at first until i read about it later and then saw him in a later scene and so as the plane closes in, they got a machine gun on board and they start firing away on the on the on their boat. And this makes for one crazy moment that maybe they're going to get out of this okay when that harpoon is fired into the plane, but all too quickly it turns into a shit show. And so the plane keeps going. I kept thinking of Empire Strikes Back. Totally. You know when they loop the walker and uh I mean, Helen's heart was in the right place, I guess, but Mariner had it covered. He was downstairs getting his gear. He was getting ready to go, and she, she got a little anxious. She, th- she thought he was running away. Mm-hmm. She, she, she called him a coward, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, she called him a Where coward. Where the fuck is he going to go? I don't know. But, Run away. But for a moment, it looked like it was going to work out. Yeah, well, it doesn't because no. the mask gets all fucked up, and he gets all kinds of pissed off. But she does take out a smoker with her. Her good shot. No. Oh, yeah, yeah. It goes right through him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a brilliant shot. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so uh, Jack Black leans out and man- manages to shoot the cable and the plane takes off. But now they know where they are, roughly, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and the boat is disabled. And I would be all kinds of pissed off at this moment t- with both of them. Yeah, and he was, right? And he's yelling at her because uh, she touched his stuff. And so the consequence is you got to get your hair cut. And then as he's doing that, he looks over and he notices that Enola has a A crayon crayon. that he had already taken away from her. And do you see her reaction? She like pulls, puts it away like, oh, you didn't see that. And then the next scene, her hair's cut. It's hilarious to see both of them sitting together like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're both in timeout. Yeah. (laughs) And so now they're hungry. And uh, they come across a, a drifter, which is played by with the Kim Coates. Kim Coates, uh, which uh, I used to love him in Sons of Anarchy. He played Tig. Yeah, yeah. And um, this guy had me cracking up. Mm-hmm. Right, his dialogue and his delivery. Uh, he just did out there really well. He is you not know? right in the head at all. Not well, at all. Well, you get the impression that he's been out there alone and has had nobody to talk to, so he's gone completely insane. Right. And so uh, he offers paper because paper besides dirt is a high commodity as well, I suppose. And he wants uh, time with... Helen. 
Well, he wants the wee one. He wants the small one first. Right. Well, for 45 minutes. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Helen's like, fuck you, dude. Don't do this. And Mariner doesn't care. It's it's business, right? Mm-hmm. So we, Because what uh, Mariner needs is supplies to repair what Helen just did. You know what I mean? So anyways, uh, they come to an agreement, and Helen and the drifter dude go down. Uh, they go down below. To on Mariner's boat. He was very specific about that. But then uh, the Mariner has a change of heart. And um, prior to this, actually, Helen offers herself to the Mariner, right. but he refuses. Mm-hmm. So keep that in the back of your mind. So um, Mariner changes his mind. He goes downstairs, tells Helen to get out of there, lands up killing the guy. You know what I mean? And then, uh, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but he goes immediately to his boat and starts raiding it. Yeah, I did pulling see the that. Supplies, you know, which, that's what you would do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? 100%. Um, and then, uh, because he gets mad at Helen because she wants a fishing pole. And he's like, this thing's a piece of shit anyway. It's worthless out here. Right. And uh, she's like, and she keeps wanting food. Right. And so this bit caught me by surprise a little bit. Uh, he takes fucking a rope jumps into the water and he's using himself as live bait. And, uh, he was pretty cool doing that. Yeah. he Okay. And then the big, uh, I love how he wiggles at the end. The big fish comes up and blows up or whatever. And then we cut to him, uh, slapping the meat on the grill or the fire or whatever. And, and both girls have their mouths just full of fish and he's all happy, happy now. Yeah. <laughs> And so now we get to see we are getting the Mariner to warm up a little bit because now small talk is beginning to happen between Helen and the Mariner. And he is slowly becoming more acclimated to be humane. I was say one of the other things that we noticed is he's actually getting at this point too closer to Enola. Yes. Uh, and the fact that he's teaching her to swim yeah. and he's showing her some different things. So you almost, and the way that Helen keeps looking at him like, he could be a dad. He could be, you know, he could be part of us. Oh, it's definitely framed to be, to be that way. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think what, like you were saying, uh, what kind of solidifies that is when he does teach her to swim. I thought that was a very tender moment. And I, exactly. And, and he really let his gills down and he uh, became more human, you know, because a lot of the people, even the Gregor uh, uh, Gandalf character, he says, what's it like to be human? Or, you know, you don't like humans or this, that, and the other. And honestly, he is part human. Mm-hmm. He's got to be, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, time goes on, and the three of them start to bond a little bit, and then they start, and then Helen's like, dry land, dry land, dry land. And Mariner says it doesn't exist. Yeah, he finally admits he doesn't know where dry, like dry land actually is. And he says uh, it doesn't exist. And she says, how do you know? And he goes, because I've never seen it. Well, and he says, because I've never seen it. And I've sailed farther than most people have dreamed of. And I believe that bit. Yeah. And then I remember seeing this in the theater at this moment. Uh, he says, you really want to see dry land? You really want to see it? What they did next, I went, Oh, okay, that makes sense, right? So it turns out that there is no dry land, or the dry land that they speak of or where he's getting all of his dirt and stuff is at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, I guess, again, I know you don't care about the expanded version, but the expanded version explains that their religion believes that the entire planet is water. There is nothing underneath the water. So when he takes her down and shows her that there is land under the water... 
that is what shatters her whole vision of her religion to her. Yeah, it doesn't move the more doesn't move the story forward. Yeah. Um, all we need to know as the audience, and I think I'm on Costner's side this time, uh, is that everything's covered, and, and everything that you would want or the the um, dirt that you need is down below. I think it did actually would have moved the story a little bit better along with me because in the beginning of the movie, when he does his deep dive and comes up with his bag or balloon of whatever it is, my first assumption was he just dove down and got some dirt from the soil down underneath. He just did a deep dive. Well, she wouldn't know he could do that. She assumed he got the dirt from dry land and that's right. the and only he, place he could and, have And he it. lets them believe that. Yeah, and so the fact of, you know, I had already figured, oh, there has to be something underneath there. You know, there has to be. A, that's where it It would have moved it along a little bit better if we had known that they didn't believe in that. Well, then you wouldn't have the twist. Yeah. I was thinking that he would have let her feel a little bit of the dirt. Like he would have put his hand up inside her bubble. So, whoa. <laughs> where the fuck did that go? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, maybe. I don't know. Have either of you scuba dived? No. No. That whole bubble thing of her going down like that, it, it wouldn't work like that. I was the pressure there, I, and the and the nitrous oxide, all of that, you know, in her blood system and everything, it, it just wouldn't have worked. She would have popped the vein. She would have died. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the pressure alone would have crushed. Besides her. the fact if if you took a basketball at the surface and you took it down to wherever they went down to the size of the basketball would go down to probably about the size of a baseball. It may be even less than that, but just as everything you know, contracts as you're going down. So that bubble that she was in would have contracted to the point of she would not have had any oxygen or even any space to breathe in that. So that was another thing that kind of bothered me when I saw that scene. <sighs> okay, so that bothers you, but you're okay with gills. I'm okay with gills when you read the sequel comic book version, but when they explain the gills. <laughs> has an answer for everything later helen explains that she believes humans once lived on land and demands to know where the mariner collected his dirt he provides her with a homemade diving bell to show her the underwater remains of denver colorado and the soil on the ocean's floor seeming to disprove helen's belief when they surface they find that the smokers have caught up to them threatening to kill them if they do not hand over Enola, who is hiding aboard the boat. The smokers abduct Enola and try to kill Helen and the Mariner. The Mariner takes Helen, diving underwater to avoid capture, with the Mariner's gills helping Helen breathe. When they resurface, they discover his boat has been destroyed. Gregor manages to find them and takes them to the new makeshift atoll inhabited by the survivors of the first attack using his gas balloon dirigible. Did you catch there was another movie reference when they dove down to Colorado? I did not. Denver, Colorado. Maybe that's where he got the harpoon from. Well, there was a sunken boat down there. That's what I'm talking about. The orca was down there? The orca was down there. I never saw it. Did you see it? No, but I did read that as one of the things. They had a bunch of different things in the different buildings as little Easter eggs in the movie. Oh, I, I never saw it. And they said there was an orca down there. So I kind of want to rewatch that scene to see if I can spot the orca. So after the deep dive, they come up and uh, the smokers are waiting for him. I don't get that he chose to do 
this deep dive. I mean, it's hard to tell how much time is passing, but didn't they just finish getting chased by the smokers and just barely getting away from them? And then he decides, well, let me go show you the bottom of the ocean. You're talking about when they uh, saw the trap mm-hmm. and then they turn around. Uh Dennis Hopper even says, if he's going one way, he's going to expect us to think that he's going a different way, so he's going to stay on the same path. So I think that he thinks that the smokers aren't going to follow him. Mm-hmm. So he may have been a little naive in that. Well, obviously he was, because when he comes up, the fucking smokers are there. Where's the girl? Where's the little girl? How much for the girl? The first thing I would have said was, she's dead, I fucking ate her. I threw her overboard. Yeah, something like that, you know. But... uh Dennis Hopper, he, uh, you know, gets all pissed off and shoots the gun in the air, and the little girl gives her location away. Didn't he say something like, that's too easy? Yeah, something like that. So they're going to kill the Mariner and Helen, so they dive into the water, and he breathes for her. And just like that other movie we were watching, the wonderful fucking vehicle gets destroyed. My thought at this point when Nord was talking to the Mariner in the beginning of the movie and Nord ends up leaving, they hadn't revealed yet that uh, Mariner had gills, did they? I don't think they had. So the Deacon probably didn't know he had gills. And when he jumped in the water, I assume that he just assumed they drowned. Oh, what? yeah. Yeah, they, they assumed they got him. I thought that, the, that Nord might have known that he had gills because he was there when uh, he was trying to leave, right, with all of his stuff. Maybe, uh, maybe he was he in the the cage at the time watching Nord leave. No, that's after the heat. That was the, that was the enforcer. Okay, but he was there at you know I'm sure that would have gone around like wildfire on the atoll. You know, oh I'm sure. Right, this guy yeah. comes in buys buys out the store. He has fresh dirt. He's got gills, and yeah. he's locked up in the cage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, who knows? Who knows? It was so disappointing to watch his boat get trashed. Just I I know you love that boat, right? And he's so heartbroken when he comes up. Mm-hmm. Which broke your heart more, the boat or the interceptor? Stop it. Stop it right there. Will you quit with these questions? I just figured that was going to bring a tear to your eye just thinking about it. Cut to Deacon is trying to have a friendly little conversation with Enola. And what does he say? Uh, she says, uh, you know, it, it does lead or something about the tattoo. And she says, but I don't know how to read it. And uh, the Deacon's uh, response is setback. As he's lighting a cigarette. Can we talk about all the smoking in this fucking movie, first of all? Ugh. To be alive in that time. I know. <laughs> I think it was Julie was watching with me at this point. She kept asking, where are they getting all of these cigarettes? Uh, tell her to read the fucking comic, because it'll tell her. Well, it's actually the extended version explains it. Yeah. They get it from all of the... Apparently, there are still boxes floating out in the ocean full of different things, and they find the boxes and get the smokes. Do we need to say that uh, Helen and the Mariner finally hit it? No. Well, because th- that's what happens next. What happens next is Helen says, we're going to die, aren't we? And she also asks him, why didn't you take me when I offered myself? And this shows uh, another human side to the Mariner because he says, because you didn't want me. You know what I mean? Um, which, you know, really turned that table because they land up sleeping together. But do they really sleep? I, it's just the term, dude. I, di- I didn't make it up. It, it's from Maxim Magazine. Okay. At this moment, we have the Mariner see a little doodle on the side of his boat where it's a palm tree, and that triggers a, re- a memory that he has in one of his National Geographic magazines, and he 
finds the, the magazine, and there is palm trees on this picture, and there is a palm tree dr- dr- drawn by Enola. How in the world could she know that? Right, right. And so he, he starts to believe that Enola has seen dry land or is from dry land, one of the two, right? And so just as we think our heroes are going to die, the gyro captain shows up and saves them. Oh, wait, no, that's the wrong fucking movie. Uh, Gregor in the hot air balloon shows up and saves the Mariner and uh, Helen. You're- I'd like to think that this old guy actually waited and watched them kind of have the little action on the boat and then showed up. Did you just say I like to think? Yeah. <laughs> he did. Uh, I thought the same thing. He could have had a show. I did. Yeah, sure, absolutely. One thing that we didn't mention earlier, and I thought this was kind of an interesting uh, storyline for the whole, you know, Deacon's, uh, the Deacon's motives, is that they're running out of oil. And the Deacon sees that as, I'm running out of time, that, you know, my power. He's got his religion never is following him. And so he's got to find dry land, or at least show that he knows where dry land is to get his people to still believe in him. Exactly. The Mariner takes a captured smoker's jet ski to chase down the Deacon aboard the remains of the Exxon Valdez. The Deacon sends the crew to start rowing the Ds after bluffingly announcing that he has decoded the map on Enola's back. With all the smokers below deck to row the tanker, the Mariner confronts the Deacon, threatening to ignite the oil reserves below unless he returns Enola. The deacon calls the mariner's bluff, knowing that it would destroy the ship. But to his surprise, the mariner drops a flare into the oil reserve. The ship is engulfed in flames and begins to sink. The mariner rescues Enola, escaping via a rope from Gregor's balloon with Helen and the atolls and forcer aboard. As the mariner climbs with Enola, the deacon grabs the rope to escape the sinking ship. He is kicked off into the water, but climbs aboard a jet ski. Firing upon the balloon shakes Enola into the ocean. As the deacon and some of his men converge on Enola, the mariner takes an impromptu bungee jump from the balloon to grab Enola right before the deacon and his men collide on their jet skis, dying in an explosion. Sometime later, Gregor identifies Enola's back tattoo as coordinates with reverse directions. Following the map, Gregor, the mariner, the atoll enforcer, Helen, and Enola discover dry land which is revealed to be the top of Mount Everest, covered with vegetation and wildlife. They also find a crude hut with the remains of Enola's parents. The mariner feels that he does not belong on dry land, builds a new wooden trimaran, and departs, as Helen and Enola bid him farewell. Roll credits. We were talking about the humanization of the mariner throughout the movie. I think the pinnacle of him showing his you know, that he is a, you know, human and kindness and all that is when he calls Enola his friend, he has to go save his friend. You can see that as he's gearing up to go get her, uh, because he's convinced that, uh, she, she's been to dry land, but you're right. He also cares about this child and wants to rescue her. So he goes off by himself to the fucking, uh, tanker. What'd you think of that small band of survivors that he was, that he left? It was like practically rowboats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Robots all tied together. Now, I'm thinking, though, the amount of people that were in those rowboats and the amount of people that ended up on the dirigible 
later on in the movie. It's not the same amount. So did some of them stay back in those rowboats? Had to have. Yeah, because some so of them didn't want to go. out in the water? Yeah. Yeah, they didn't want to go. They didn't They didn't trust the Mariner yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but Helen convinces Gregor and the Enforcer to go. But in the meantime, the Deacon has is coming under fire, right? His tribe are ready to revolt, and he's got to do something. So he goes out there and feeds them a line of bullshit about, I found dry land. We're heading there now. I love the throwaway line that Hopper gives. They'll be rowing for three months before they figure out I'm full shit. <laughs> so spoken like a true leader, mm-hmm. you know. I like how at this point he also, because they kind of hinted that these guys, smokers are really pirates. He puts on a pirate hat. We have the Mariner sneaking aboard the ship. He gradually takes out a few people here and there while the speech is happening. And then eventually we get to this point that I really, really enjoy where Nord has to listen to Enola yammer on and on and on like she was doing with the Mariner earlier. Right. She was just being herself, you know, and uh, smack talking. And so the Mariner comes up. He's on deck. He sees the deacon. And uh, Enola had already said he's coming for me. And when he does, you guys are in trouble. He's going to kill you. And uh, this is where it really humanizes him. And uh, Dennis Hopper's like, why do you even care? She All she does is just talk and talk and talk. She's a pain in the ass. And he was like, you're right, she is. But she's my friend. you know. And so I, I thought that was touching as well. The whole idea of dropping the flare into the oil, how did he know that that wouldn't have just blown up and killed everybody, like killed himself? Uh, well, I, I, I got a theory about that. So it's him against everybody, if you think about it, right? He is gravely outnumbered. And so he cares so much about her that if she's going to die, she's going to die with him. Or plot convenience. Yeah. There are so many holes in the side of the Exxon Valdez that all the flames or everything were able to go out. I don't know. I really, uh, I really enjoyed that. You're not gonna drop that. Oh, he he he'll drop it. I I really like that moment. That what I appreciate about that moment is most other action movies, most other movies you watch, when the villain calls the bluff like that, it's right. It's a bluff. He's not going to do it. And I like how the manager is like, okay, he drops it. I mean, that I appreciate because that was kind of a swerve that you don't expect. And one of my favorite moments in the movie happens right after that. The flare reaches the bottom, and the old man's in there. Oh, thank God. That is such a great moment. He's just waiting, just waiting to to die. die. (laughs) Oh, thank God. And boom, the Exxon Valdez blows up. And so this is a case of the Mariner missing Enola just by this much because uh, the deacon kidnaps her and runs off. But in the meantime... uh, Was this your big vision? That's what she says to to the deacon. Right. And at this time, uh, the Mariner kills Nord. I thought this whole bit of... The Mariner rescuing Nola, it happens really quick. The the plane bit? Yeah, all of it. You know, from the time he oh, climbs yeah, up right. to uh the to where he gets to the, where they were, the tain take the plane takes off, he throws the grappling hook, crashes the plane. Feels like five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. If that. And I kind of appreciated it because we had already spent two hours, you know, mm-hmm. learning how to fish. So I'm glad that they were able to wrap this up. He manages to save Enola. Just as everything's going to blow up and uh, the gyro captain arrives. The ridgeable. There you go. And they rescue. And I still don't know how they fit 
all of these people up there. I thought when we first saw the dirigible in the very beginning, it only fit the old guy. So then all of a sudden they must have built it out so that he can fit. Uh, they must have. It almost looked like a hot air balloon after that. I mean, yeah. like a like a proper one, right? Mm-hmm. So anyways. Where uh, was he keeping all the food that he'd been eating while he was up there? I know. But they get her up to the, the thing and Dennis Hopper climbs up the rope with them. And uh, he he shoots or does something and he, he manages to knock Enola off the she loses her balance and she falls and uh that was quite the fall how does she survive it i don't know she would have been knocked out at that point at the very least she would have been knocked out and had maybe a couple of broken bones yeah and it's because of that uh, the realism completely has gone out the door for me at this point well there's two things in this scene uh this whole situation that really bother me one is the bungee jump was that, it looked like solid rope to me. It did not look like a bungee type rope. And if he had jumped off with that tied to his leg or whatever, it would have ripped his leg off. Like how does leg stay attached, let alone him bounce all the way back up? The second thing is, is you have Deacon and the two other jet skiers all approaching Enola all at the same time. Whether they had picked her up or not picked her up, wouldn't they have just all crashed into her and died altogether? So was that their plan, to die? Well, what else you got to live for? Yeah. All, those, all the smokes and alcohol are gone. I what, thought they were just going do? to get her. Enola is saved with this miraculous bungee jump, and they make their way to dry land. I guess Kevin Costner actually did a bungee jump there. That was really him doing that stunt. Oh, was it? Now, I don't know if they really grabbed her and picked her up out of the water. I wasn't sure about that one. But, yeah, he really did jump off of something with bungee cord attached. Yeah. Um, I did notice that when he picks her up and he they fly up, he purposely they purposely have to show him looking at the camera. And I immediately thought of Die Hard 2 when John McClane gets ejected from the plane. It did feel like that. Yeah. So that special effect was kind of shoddy. So they figure out where the dry land is, and miraculously, it just turns out that the longitude and latitude were reversed. You know, come on, duh. Who knew? Apparently not them. They find dry land, and uh, this is, you know, where I guess we find out that Enola is from this island. They had mentioned briefly earlier on that Helen had found Enola in a basket floating in the water. And apparently, when Enola's parents died, they would put her in the basket and sent her out into the water. Like Moses. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. So anyway, uh, she returns home. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, the mariner is having land sickness. He doesn't like the way the forest moves. He doesn't like the fact that he's out of the water. So he has to leave. And I buy that. I thought that was a great. I do too. I thought that was a great reason for him to leave, that he just he didn't feel like he belonged there. And if you've ever felt like you didn't belong somewhere, the first thing you want to do is get out of there. And so he knew that Enola would be upset with him, but he had to do what was best for him. And so he took off. Here's what I'm thinking: just because he leaves doesn't mean he can't come back once exactly. in a while. Right, that's what I was thinking too. He even says if he finds anybody else out there that's like them, he will send them towards yeah. the dry land. Yeah. It says here 
that it's revealed that they are on the top of Mount Everest. No, it's not revealed to us. Not in this version. It is revealed in the extended version. Right, but that's not the version we watched. Correct. It's also not revealed that it's the year 2500 in the original version. Correct. Right, so I have to cut that and this. No. Awesome. I, I Like I said, we have said both that you know, we're interested in the extended version. I guess in the extended version, when uh, they're walking around or Helen is talking to Mariner at some point, in the background is a plaque that reveals that it's Mount Everest. Plus, Not when they're talking. Enola and, Enola and Helen go to the top of the mountain and Enola and Helen find the plaque. But it actually, even without the extended version, it is revealed that it is Everest. The way it is revealed is if you decipher... The tattoo, which I think was either in Hindu or Chinese, it really is the longitude latitude of Mount Everest. Well, the whole idea was it for to be Mount Everest yeah, from the very beginning. So even if you don't see the extended version, if you can figure that much out, it, it, it really was the longitude latitude. So in other words, it's never told to us. No. Don't you need like oxygen tanks and stuff to breathe at the top of Everest? I'm guessing because the water had raised so high that their bodies had adjusted that they were already at that altitude. Sea level. Yeah, that's where sea level is now. Okay. Oh, so they get that scientifically accurate, but not the fucking melting of the polar caps? Inconsistent filmmaking, guys. Inconsistent filmmaking. So are you guys interested at all in knowing what's next for Waterworld? No. Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. (laughs) Uh, Apparently in 2021... It was all signed and noted and doctored that there is going to be a live action version of Waterworld coming out, uh, a TV series, probably like the Willow series that recently came out. Isn't that awesome? Super. Duper. I wonder if it's going to follow the comic book sequel, which I guess explains that uh, Mariner is not a mutant, that he was scientifically engineered with gene splicing. And I guess as the story goes, that shark, that mutated shark that we saw in the ocean that he fished and killed and ate, uh, he shared a generic genetic marker with it that he was spliced with. And that's one of the reasons why he's kind of angry all the time. Um, they explain that. And because of that, that is now Mariner's mission is he's trying to go out and find other people who have been part of the scientific experiment, just like he was. Super. So somebody put equipment together. Oh, maybe it was like the same people that concocted the machine that turns your, your urine into drinkable water. I I got the feeling that it was the Mariner that made that device. I'm just thinking that kind of technology was used, you know, to make the Mariner be the Mariner. I guess the original version of that machine, at least how the writers had planned it, was it was going to be human organs that they were going to send the water through like a kidneys and other stuff that would purify the water. But then I guess, I don't know if it's the producers or the director thought it was just too disgusting of an idea. So what is a better storyline, a journey across the ocean or a journey to a special mountain? Oh, Oh, fuck. And now it's time for John's. Moment. So this is the point of our podcast where I take any movie we're currently reviewing, in this case Waterworld, and, cre- and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. Let's start with Frodo. Frodo is the one on a journey assigned as the ring bearer. Enola 
is the one who's forced to carry that tattoo, which leads to the ultimate prize. Therefore, she's my pick for Frodo. Sam would be Helen. She's the one who protects Enola and keeps her safe all along the journey. Aragorn is Frodo's protector and future king. I choose Mariner as Aragorn because he reluctantly takes on the task of of protecting Helen and Enola as he helps them on their journey. Don, you mentioned earlier, old Gregor, yeah, he's got some Gandalf qualities. He's the one who deciphered the tattoo, built the balloon, and generally is the smartest one afloat. That makes the fellowship Enola, Helen, Mariner, old Gregor, and all the other folks who join at the end. The first atoll that Mariner arrives at reminds me of the village of Bree, where Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin were supposed to go and meet Gandalf at the Prancing Pony. Helpful at first, but you can't trust any of the locals. Any one of them will stab you in the back to better their own circumstances. Sauron the White, the one who serves Sauron? Well, he's Nord. In the beginning, he pretends to be on the side of right as he gathers information, only to prove later he was a spy for Sauron, or technically the deacon. And again, so that makes deacon Sauron. He seeks Middle-earth, a.k.a. dry land, for his own purposes, so he can enhance his own rule by establishing a future kingdom. And that makes all of his smokers the orc army. The closest I feel of anyone coming to Gollum was that crazy drifter that our fellowship meets along the journey. He's batshit crazy, the items that he has to trade are precious to him, and he seems to have some serious mood swings going on. So what is the precious? What is the one ring? In Waterworld, it's the one thing everyone is trying to obtain that will lead them to the ultimate prize. As previously mentioned, Enola is the ring bearer, so that makes the tattoo on her back the ring. It's the one thing everybody wants. The deacon wants to use it to keep control over his followers. Helen wants it because she wants it to lead to their salvation. Once the tattoo is deciphered, it's symbolic of the ring being cast out into Mount Doom. Enola is no longer needed as the map, and she can just become a little girl going home. There you have it. It's my comparison between Waterworld and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. I have to say that uh, the first three, pretty spot on. Uh, I, I totally agree with Enola being the Frodo character. And I almost thought that maybe the Mariner was kind of Sam too. But no, you're right. He's definitely the Aragorn. The one I did enjoy is our paper guy being the Gollum. That, that was good. Uh, overall, the parallels match up. Um, I would think I would have thought that you had a pretty easy time this week making this one because you know it's kind of a no-brainer. Fuck. No, I'm just kidding. Um, good job overall. I'm gonna give you a solid, solid C plus. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I thought that the uh, the Sam and the Frodo and the Aragorn were spot on, and I really dug the uh, the Gollum angle as well. And I thought it was good to call out that the smokers were the orc armies as well. Uh, Gandalf, he was the one that ultimately figured out the ring and having the tattoo be the ring. So, yeah, I think that that's a a really, really solid comparison. I'm going to give you an A. Oh, well, thank you for that. 
What the fuck just happened? I thought I might get some bonus points for it's the first time I've mentioned the city of Bree and the Prancing Pony. The, I, I keep trying to tell you this, bud. If you have to ask for the bonus points, you're not ever, ever going to get them. I will tell you, you said it was kind of easy this week. I did struggle with thinking that maybe just Enola was the ring because she's the one that everybody seeked out. So I was originally going to make either Mariner or Helen be Frodo since really uh, Helen was the ring bearer if she was bearing Enola the whole way. But you explained it correctly. But yeah, I I ended up changing it just the other day. And now because you've taken too long, I lower (laughs) it to a C minus. Okay. And that was John's. Moment. All right, what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to rate this flick. John, you ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to dive in. (laughs) Hey, Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. If somebody says, hey, do you want to watch Waterworld? Fuck yeah, I do. Ready to watch that anywhere, anytime. A one fuck movie is a movie where you've seen it and it's one and done. You know what? I I really, I don't give a fuck about this movie. It's just not worth my time anymore. I've seen everything I need to see out of it. And what's a zero? A zero fuck movie is, oh, for shit's sake. What the hell? Why would you make me watch this? Or in other words... We just don't give a fuck. Now, before we start, yes, you have gone three weeks in a row. Oh, the pressure! Guessing my rating. Pressure, pressure. Can pressure. you do it four weeks in a row? All right, hang on. Uh, I'm looking at it right here. Can you read my mind? All right, hang on, uh, Professor. I need eye contact. We know that. No, you're supposed to look at me, dude. We know that he was kind of a fan, but not really a fan. He didn't like he that did. the uh, pressurized, uh, she would have been pressurized. That wasn't realistic for him. He referenced the comic book a lot. He did reference the comic book a lot. You are going to give Waterworld two fucks. That is your final answer? That's my final answer. Okay. I'm writing it down. All right. Uh, who wants to go first? I'm curious to hear John go first. I will go first then. Oh, fucking hey, Let's do it. I'm so nervous right now. <laughs> Waterworld is basically Mad Max gone for a swim. Instead of desert, we have water. It's an interesting storyline that could have been told in so many better ways. The flow of the movie is a little chaotic. The acting is a bit rough. And for me, it was a slow kind of snail pace of a movie. And there are a lot of elements that were just too unbelievable. I will give praise to the stunts and the explosions. Those were were well-coordinated. The fact that Costner was willing to do many of his own stunts, I gotta give him some credit. Generally, I am a fan of most action movies, especially those with sci-fi fantasy elements. But Waterworld was a tough watch. I am interested in seeing the Ulysses cut someday to see all if it fixes a lot of my issues with Waterworld, but right now, I'm just not sure I could even sit through another screening. The movie had a lot of potential, and I really wanted to find something that I'm missing that would have made it more enjoyable. Typically, I say I love movies that make me think afterwards, but the only thing that Waterworld made me think about was, why the hell did I watch Waterworld? So for those reasons, I am giving Waterworld two fucks. The movie had potential, 
The scenery, the stunts, and the special effects were great, but it lacked a good storyline, acting, and suffered from ugly plot issues. And there you have my rating. Congratulations, Don. Four in a row, baby. You, you're pretty dialed in on John. Two fucks from the comic book guy. I'll go next. All right. Uh, Waterworld. What can I say? I'm a fucking big Kevin Costner fan. Um, I'm a huge Mad Max fan. Uh, you take Mad Max, add it to the water. I was all gung-ho to see it. Um, it's not a horrible movie. If you just accept it for what it is, a big blockbuster popcorn film and turn your brain off it's it's a fun ride uh is it a great movie not by any stretch of the imagination is it a guilty pleasure of mine sure will i watch it when it's on Eh, it really depends on my mood there are better kevin costner movies out there uh there are better post-apocalyptic movies out there for me waterworld kind of uh kind of falls right in the middle of the best and the worst you know, so for me, I'm giving Waterworld 2.75 fucks. All right. That leaves me. I hadn't seen Waterworld in several years, and I remember watching it in the theater and thinking, eh, it, it felt a little trite. And I have um, Dennis Hopper as he's, well, he's always a bad guy. So, of course, he's going to be the bad guy. He had a lot of likable lines, though. And it was, uh, I don't know, the the whole jet ski armada. It's like, man, where the hell did they get all these jet skis? Holy moly. But I got to say that each time I've watched Waterworld, I've gotten to the end of the movie, and I thought, yeah, that was kind of fun. And watching it this time around felt the same way. I did have some trepidation watching it, thinking, I wonder if it's going to hold up, because it had been several years since I'd seen it. And ultimately, I ended up liking... Uh, the same things that I liked each time I'd watched it before. Anytime that we got to watch the Trimoran at work, loved it. I totally dug Kevin Costner in this movie. His character as the Mariner, it was fun watching him operate the boat. The boat. He was so uh, he was so effortless as he would do miscellaneous things with his hands and feet, and the way he'd scurry up and down and around and swing all over the place. The attack on the atoll. I I loved watching him do that little underwater swim thing, and then he springs up out of the water, and then he does as you said, the arrow flynn, you know, up to the top of the mast. Loved that. Absolutely loved that. And the fact that that action sequence went on for so long I, was super enjoyable. I really loved the camera work that we got when Mar- the Mariner is teaching Enola how to swim. It was so tender, as you said, and the underwater close-up shots, so precious. I loved watching her being on his back as they were swimming underwater. The third act kind of sort of falls apart for me, but by the end of the movie, I don't feel jaded or burned by it at all. The music, I really thought that the music worked well as having all of these different elements of music that made it feel, like I said, sort of simple and uh, and feral and not necessarily you know majestic in any way and so I I thought that that was represented well for the backdrop of the story and the story arc it works okay because it's all about trying to find the land and why this girl has a tattoo on the back of her body I have I don't know but you know it kind of sort of works by the end of the movie I really thought that Enola was a very endearing character, and I really appreciated her her grit, 
her moxie, and she doesn't back down. She wasn't backing down any time to the Mariner, and she wasn't backing down any time to Nord or to Deacon, and I love that about her. In the end, I, I look at uh, I, I look at the movie as a fun a fun watch, and it's a fun adventure with great moments in it. Uh, overall, as a movie, it's not fantastic, but it's just a, a a good fun watch. I give it three solid fucks. Three solid fucks from the professor, two fucks from the comic book guy, and two point seven five fucks from me gives Waterworld an average of. 2.6 fucks, which puts it in the 27th spot with Cobra and Christine. And it is slightly better than The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizu, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Speed. And slightly worse than Atonement, Scrooged, and The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. So there you have it. I have a theory about potentially why the diving bell is able to go so deep in the water and did not get crushed since we're working on fantastical features in a science fiction driven movie in the first place. I am fucking all gills. John mentioned earlier that uh, it had to do with the, the waters being affected by a moon. In the extended version, there is a second moon, and so there's a stronger gravitational pull, and the stronger gravitational pull pulls on the water harder. If it pulls on the water harder, then it's lifting the water up. If it's lifting the water up, then maybe the, the elevation of water going up so high makes the water less dense. And if it's less dense molecularly, maybe it's easier to go deeper. Oh, I like to go deeper. It's a sound theory, that. Professor. I would, I would accept that. Oh, would you? Yeah. Would you accept that? Okay, I got a better question. Who cares? Exactly. All right, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, please check out our website. And speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? Well, they can find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where we post our show notes, all of our podcasts, teasers for future podcasts as well as anything else we feel like shoving up in that site you can also find us at all of social media as well as any place that hosts podcasts all right i just want to throw a quick shout out and get well soon to my cousin beaver thanks for uh, suggesting Waterworld. we had a lot of fun discussing it and watching it i also want to thank zach ronnie and jill for always listening keep on listening thanks zach thanks ronnie thanks jill and I want to thank anyone else who listens to us and who has suggested a movie. If you keep listening, we'll keep recording. So for Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for listening. We got to stay away from the chicken tender vendor. The hot dog was okay, but it still sat in my stomach. Well, it's a fucking hot dog, dude. That's what it does. Yeah. That's yeah. part of the magic of a hot dog. It reminds you hours later, oh, yeah, I had a hot dog today. Especially when you're burping, right, and you're walking oh. through fucking Comic-Con. That's, that, that's the magic of the hot dog. <laughs> it but literally is identical. It's so it, funny. Well, it's not identical. But it's fucking close. It's really close. That's not identical. That's really close. It's really close. That, That's what we've been saying. It's really close. Oh, wait, where are we? <laughs> or I was going to say, dude, we're in the water. That's, I, I remember, but I don't know if that's how it went. Because now that I'm hearing it out loud, 
It doesn't sound as funny as I thought it was when we were coming on. Most home. things in your head don't. So John and I have been having this conversation on who is the bigger dick. And I tell, I, I keep saying that you're just as big of a dick as I am. You're just more subtle about it, right? So every once in a while, I like to pop out and do something nice for someone other than myself. Well, I think the truth of it is, is that you're a big dick to everybody and I'm just a big dick to you. Yeah, well, back in 95, very rarely did you see anybody drink their own urine. So, mm-hmm. is it necessary for me to drink my own urine? No, but I do it because I like the taste. It's <laughs> sterile. I totally missed it. <laughs> water gurgle. I was thinking either water world or just water world and base it off of squirting. <laughs> I knew that's exactly where John was going to go. I knew that's exactly where he was going to go. It was going to be like Waterworks or something like that. Waterworks, that's the answer. And, And the professor comes through. All right, fuck off. Good night.